Hello, and welcome to the Plastic Surgery Practice Podcast, a part of the MedCorp Podcast Network. My name is Allison Warner, and I am the co-chief editor of Plastic Surgery Practice. In this episode, sponsored by Clarius, we are going to be talking about the use of ultrasound in the plastic surgery practice, with a specific look at how it can be used with breast plastic surgery patients. And joining me to talk about this is Dr. Mark Saltzman. Dr. Saltzman is a plastic surgeon in private practice in Louisville, Kentucky. He completed his general surgery residency in New York at Mount Sinai Medical School and his plastic surgery fellowship at Duke University. He is an assistant clinical professor of plastic surgery at the University of Louisville. Dr. Saltzman is a key opinion leader for several plastic surgery companies, including our sponsor today, Clarius. Dr. Saltzman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Allison. Well, let's get started. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your plastic surgery practice in Louisville? Well, I've been in practice since 92 and probably since 94, so almost 28 years, it's been exclusively cosmetic surgery, aesthetic plastic surgery. So mm-hmm. I do breast, body, face, nose, eyes, 10 or 12 different operations, but all aesthetic, no real reconstructive since 93, mm-hmm. really. Mm. Okay. So when did you first start using ultrasound in your practice? Well, I bought a a Vaser uh, from a company that was then going to make a ultrasound device that they had OEM'd by a company that really made ultrasound devices. And they took a MacBook Pro and they put the Mm -hmm. inner workings of an ultrasound machine below the MacBook Pro. But all of the little knobs and buttons and things were all in a tray. So if you didn't want to use it, you could just use... MacBook Pro Apple type commands and they kind of dumbed it down but there really wasn't anybody in the country doing ultrasound so I'm not sure why they thought it was necessary but they had someone design a probe that they thought would be better used by a plastic surgeon Uh, it was still a linear probe which is with the kind that we use for ultrasound for plastics but they made it so it would fit in your hand and you could run it over the breast like you were doing a breast exam. So rather than a T-shaped probe that an ultrasound tech would use, this was an L-shaped probe. So it was kind of different. And they had mm-hmm. no idea what the implications or what the applications would be of this thing. So mm-hmm. I just started using it and experimenting with it. And there was a couple of us in the country that had it. And at a meeting, we all talked about, well, what do you do with this thing? How do you use it? So it kind of expanded from there. So since your experience goes back so far, I was going to ask um, when you got started with ultrasound, what types of applications were you using it with? But I think maybe the more pertinent question is, what types of applications are you using it for now? Well, when I first started out, I looked at everything because I didn't know what the hell I was mm-hmm. looking at. And yeah. the nice thing about plastic surgeons in difference to a radiologist or to radiology tech is we know what it really looks like underneath. So we are kind of our own AI. So when we start looking at breast, we know we're looking through breast parenchyma. We know that there's a capsule. We know what the implant looks like. We know that there's fluid around it. So it's 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 not a quantum leap to be able to interpret these gray bitmap images that you're seeing on a screen and put it in your brain to making a 3D image of what actually exists. So I first started looking at breasts because that seemed to be the, the simple thing. And there was some literature back then that showed that uh, in proper hands, ultrasound could be used as a first source thing to try and look at signs and symptoms of a broken implant. You know, could you see the implant? Mm-hmm. Could you see fluid around the implant? Could you see if the implant was intact? Could you tell us? a textured implant from a smooth implant. So I was mainly just looking to, to, to kind of see 
what was there. And from there, it kind of expanded to a bunch of different things. So we do mm. everything today with it. So we'll look at, in the face, we'll see, is there a filler that has a nodule? What is the filler? Is it a filler that's a hyaluronic acid filler? Is it a calcium-based filler? Uh, is it located in a place where we can get a needle into it, maybe break it up because it's calcium and or is it just something that we need to put a directed triamcinolone or steroid injection in? And you can do that under, under ultrasound. You can make an assessment of where do you want to put the fillers? Where are the blood vessels? What layer do you want to put the filler? So it really helps in the face. And then we started playing around with it to do blocks uh, because hmm. there, are some, there was some good literature out of Spain that uh, one of the Spanish anesthesiologists had started doing these pectoralis blocks. And I thought it would be a neat idea to try and alleviate some of the negative thoughts of patients. Well, the submuscular implant is going to hurt more than the subglandular implant. And the spasm of the muscle was going to cause the implant to be more high riding. And uh, the more I read about the blocks, I was intrigued. So I started doing them. And then I came up with a better way of doing them because mm. anesthesiologists are standing at the head of the bed and while they're messing around with the tube or putting the LMA in, I'm thinking, I don't want to be up there trying to do a block. And I didn't want the needle heading towards the pleura, towards the lung where I could drop a lung. Uh, I wanted to be more parallel to the chest wall. So I started doing them from the side and um, we have a series of over 600 pectoralis blocks now. And then we started with the abdomen. We said, all right, what else is there's a tap block. And so we read about, and my anesthesiologist actually went to a course in Chicago on how to do a tap block. We started doing tap blocks six or seven mm -hmm. years ago. And that really alleviated a lot of the pain that patients were having. Then they came out with a long-lasting pain medicine that lasts three, uh, three days. And we're thinking, oh, my God, this is great. So we've looked at a whole bunch of things from there. Yeah. Well, I'd like to move on to discussing your area of expertise, which is breast surgeries and post-surgery maintenance, a little bit of what you talked about. You recently spearheaded a study that screened 584 asymptomatic women with implants for silent ruptures. Can you explain why you initiated the study and share some of the results? I think there was not any good literature uh, at the time to know how many people are really walking around with a silent rupture. And I had scanned, I don't know, thousands of women by then who were totally asymptomatic. And uh, every once in a while, you'd find someone who everything looked good, everything felt good. And yet, you know, the implants were 10 years old. And you go, you know, you know, there's going to be a fair percentage that they're ruptured. And lo and behold, they were ruptured. And mm. the FDA had recommended that, you know, we tell our patients, and the patients can read it online themselves, that they have an MRI at years three, five, and seven. But at a cost of $1,500 to $2,500, you know, the surgery is only back then 7000 No one's doing a $1,500, $3,000 MRI every couple of years, you know, to look yeah. at a $5,000 procedure. So, you know, ultrasound right. seemed like a better way to go. And then I noticed also in the literature that really no one ever asked patients and did any kind of a study or presented any kind of statistics to how women felt about the fact that these implants could break. And there was all these, this non information on the internet. If you ask a woman, how long do implants last? They'll tell you, you're supposed to have them replaced every 10 years. That's not true. Uh, the warranty lasts 10 years, but the implant can last well longer than 10 years. So we wanted to see how do, what do women really feel about the fact that there maybe is a ticking time bomb, that this thing at some point is going to break. A saline implant, mm -hmm. you know it breaks. It's a bag of water. It goes flat. Gel implant, you may not know it. Implant can break and yet the breast remains soft and doesn't look distorted and everybody thinks it's fine. Mm, okay. Well, 
MRA and mammography have long been considered the gold standard for screening breast implants. So could you describe the comparative benefits of high-resolution ultrasound for screening? I know you just kind of touched on that a little bit there. Well, mammography is really only good for extracapsular rupture, meaning that mm. the, the gel uh, has extravasated from not only the shell, but has left the scar tissue or the capsule around, and it's very sensitive to finding that. Unfortunately, the vast majority of ruptures are intracapsular, and it's very, very poor mammography is in seeing an intracapsular rupture. The gold mm. standard for intracapsular rupture is an MRI because its uh, sensitivity is in the high 90s, and in some studies, the specificity is as high as 100%. So it's very sensitive and very specific. The problem is cost. And you're yeah. not, it's not done at your plastic surgeon's office. I mean, you're going to a right. special place, a, a women's diagnostic center, a hospital, an outpatient center. You know, you have to go park and put the name band on. And it, it's an mm -hmm. expense and a hassle. So nobody does it uh, for surveillance. Yeah. So ultrasound um, has always been kind of a second line of defense. When someone has a suspicious mammogram, they look at parenchymal changes in the breast with ultrasound to really hone down on, you know, is this uh, something that is worrisome and, and needs to be looked at as a cancer or is it is it more benign? But it really has never been a first-use diagnostic modality for looking at broken implants because everybody just sent people for MRI. So it's only mm. been in the last couple of years from all the data from the ultrasound literature that in the right hands you're not going to miss very many broken implants it's it hasn't happened to me yet that i get a right. surprise in the or that i thought the lady had two intact implants and lo and behold one's broken i haven't seen that i've had some mm. false positives but that's a different story because almost every time i've ever had a false positive the lady was going to have surgery anyway she had such bad capsule mm. contracture that we're, we're taking the implants out regardless if they're broken or not they're 12 years old and she's got grade four capsules yeah well you talked there about how it's advantageous to the patient so do you think using ultrasound makes you a better plastic surgeon yeah i really do i think it's the 21st century stethoscope being able to see inside the woman's breast makes all of the diagnostic workups shorter. We don't have to send the patient to a radiologist. Let's say someone presents with an expanded breast, it's suddenly bigger. We know it's fluid, you usually have a seroma. And in today's world, we're worried about ALCL, which is a, a rare lymphoma that you can get with long-standing, heavily textured implants. And we want to know if that's the case, because that in that scenario, you'd want to take not only the implant out, but the capsule, take, do a capsulectomy. And if you don't have ultrasound, first you have to say, well, is it a seroma? I don't know. We have to send the patient for an ultrasound. If it is a seroma, then from the diagnostic ultrasound, there'd be another uh, sent to a yeah, radiologist who knows how to do an aspiration. You wait for that to come back. Is the implant broken or not broken? That would have to be discerned with one of the two ultrasounds. We can tell all that in five minutes in the office with a little handheld Clarius device and the whole conversation and the workup is pretty much done and we can move on to planning for the surgery. Mm. Uh, a lot of times it, it helps just knowing what type of implant we're dealing with. I mean, sometimes the patients don't remember. I don't know what, if it's saline or gel. Is it textured mm. or smooth? I can tell if it's saline or gel and I can tell if it's textured or smooth. So it really helps in shortening the diagnosis of what needs to be done and makes the planning of what needs to be done so much better. 
It also helps in not having surprises in the operating room. Because in my game, when you're in aesthetic plastic surgery, once you give the patient the bill, there's no adding on to the bill for, oh, whoops, we, didn't, we found something that we spent three more hours doing we didn't think that we were going to do. Or, oh, whoops, mm -hmm. we went in and your implant was broken. We thought we were going to keep your seven-year-old implants. But lo and behold, they were both broken, and now you owe us you know, $3,000 more. And the lady goes, well, you know, you're going to eat that cost. So there's no surprises. You know what you're going to find, and you know how much time to schedule that patient for. It's not an hour-long out and in of implants. That's a different operation at a different cost than a three-hour bilateral capsulectomy and new implant placement. Okay. So you have a reputation for reducing post-surgery recovery time for your patient, for your, for your patients. What's your secret? Well, I learned a long time ago from a buddy of mine down in Texas um, that the less tearing of tissues, the less blunt dissection that you do, the, the quicker the recovery. Uh, and having absolutely no blood in the pocket, the quicker the recovery. So John Tabitz, who recently passed away in, in March, was my mentor on this. And I've, I've used, since talking with him, a hand-switching electric artery forceps. So there is no blunt dissection. There's no finger of pushing and, and tearing any tissues. Everything is coagulated and cauterized before any bleeding takes place. So there's absolutely no blood in the pocket. And then mm. I think it's a bad idea to put sizers in. I, I do a breast augmentation in 22 minutes and, and with no blood loss, and I never use a sizer. I think stuffing sizers in and out uh, runs the risk of more bacterial infiltration into and around the pocket, higher rates of capsular contracture, and you're setting up a stretching of the tissues which hurts, and I think you're setting up as the implant goes in and out a pulling apart of a vessel that you've not coagulated and having a, a late hematoma that you, you're not able to account for because it was the implant put it really wasn't the cutting that did it it was mm -hmm. the putting in and out of, of uh, implants so we do all of our sizing on a computer we have a, a 3d image and we can show the patient exactly different implant sizes different implant shapes different implant projection ratios if you wanted to get crazy and do different brands one on one side one on the other you can do all that on a computer without stuffing it in and out of the lady while she's asleep <laughs> i think all those things help and then there's the, the the isolation of you know the no touch technique and changing your gloves and irrigation with different antibiotics and dilute uh betadine all those things help mm -hmm. okay so back to ultrasound a little bit ultrasound is also useful for post-surgery patient management including the identification and aspiration of seromas can you tell me more about how ultrasound improves post-operative care there? Oh, it's so important when you see a tummy tuck patient and she's swollen. Could be a man, but he or she is swollen. And you're thinking, is that edema or swelling? Or is it a succinct amount of fluid that would we be better off aspirating? Is it mm -hmm. a hematoma versus a seroma? And with ultrasound, I can look at it, you know, the next day if I wanted to before it's purple and it's just, I can see it's blood because blood uh, absorbs some of the ultrasound. It looks a little bit darker like there's stuff in there with a little bit of light colored stuff in between. Whereas a seroma is just totally black. It's just water. It just transmits the ultrasound waves. Nothing bounces back and you can see that it's fluid. And edema just looks like a cloudy day. I mean, so they look totally different. So okay. you're able with great clarity to be able to say, this is swelling, Mrs. Smith. 
you're going to be fine. It's going to go mm -hmm. away. And you can actually measure the amount of swelling. You can measure the size of the stroma and show the lady that it was four millimeters this week. This next week, it's one millimeter. And show her, even though it looks big on the screen, when you tell them that's a one centimeter screen, your seroma is only two millimeters big. The needle's one millimeter big. To go try and put a needle in it, it's, it's going to be, even for me, it's going to be hard. So to watch the resolution of the seroma, it's, it's unbelievably better to be able to tell a patient, I don't use drains, I, I do a drainless tummy tuck and okay. obturate the dead space with a progressive tension continuous suture with uh, using a, a V-lock. And I, I haven't drained a seroma in years, but mm. when there was a study that we did using a, a biologic cyanocrylate glue, I think every single patient had a seroma. And I'm happy that at that point in time, I did have ultrasound. I'll never forget a lady standing up who was one of the 10 people on the study uh, and, and I was one of them and she got up on the podium at a national meeting said well none of her patients had seromas and I really wanted to raise my hand and said I'll bet you a million dollars they all had seromas you didn't look did you you know mm -hmm. if you don't look you don't see it but mm -hmm. every single patient with this glue had seromas mm. it just didn't work as well as people thought it did right okay well I want to get your thoughts on the Florida Board of Medicine's recent implementation of an emergency order mandating ultrasound guidance for safer Brazilian butt lifts or BBL procedures. How do you feel about this regulation? I think it's great. Uh, I think it takes an operation that had the highest death rate and makes it nearly, not totally impossible, but nearly impossible. You're going to place the fat below the deep gluteal fascia. And I've mm -hmm. done it that way for six or seven years, even before I had a Claris device. Uh, mm -hmm. We used a long condom on a, a regular linear probe. Uh, it was much more onerous than the Claris device. But mm -hmm. um, it's so simple to see that big fat cannula as a big white line between the deep and superficial gluteal fascias. And then you don't have to do the whole thing under ultrasound. It's fun to do. But then as you pull back, you know you're not going any deeper. And, and to see that the fat is in the proper place is, is rewarding. It's also great to see where are there opportunities to put more fat. You can not only see it visually that you need a little bit more, say, right here, but you can visualize and say, you know, the superficial fascia is not pushed out quite as much right here. I know I can get my cannula in there and put some more fat in. And there's also another component that people haven't started talking about because I'm doing it, but not many people in the country are yet, yeah. is you can see that the superficial septa that go from the superficial fascia to the dermis, and when you're all finished where they have little dimpling, you can take an 18-gauge needle under ultrasound and just cut that little septa. I know they make some fancy devices that cost a bunch of money with lights on <laughs> and all that. You yeah. don't need it. You just take a little 18-gauge needle ultrasound and find the little vertical septa and then put a little fat where that septa was, and that'll push the skin back out and get rid of the, the dimples that you mm. see in the superficial part of the uh, buttock. So I think it's a good idea. I know people are mad because they don't want to learn ultrasound, but I think it's a good idea. So do you think there should be a national mandate? Well, I think it's up to plastic surgeons. I mean, I think it's going to be the lawyers will probably force us into this once they see that Florida has this mm. and then it's a safety issue. It, it, I don't know if it would be mandated or it'll yeah. just be the standard of care um, that if you don't do it, mm. you're going to get sued if you kill somebody. If you don't kill somebody, nobody knows. Yeah. But I think it's a good idea. I think the people that are against it are afraid for the wrong reasons. They, if they would just buy the thing and anybody at our skill level who's done as much as we have as plastic surgeons can certainly see two white lines and some striated muscle underneath and follow a big, big rod 
you know, between these two white lines mm-hmm. and then put the fat in. It's just not that hard. Uh, and looking at our plastic surgery forums, mm-hmm. people have already said, yeah, I started doing it. I don't know what you guys are afraid of. It's easy. It's not, not hard. My fellows do it. The very <laughs> first time we show them how to do it, they go, this is nothing. This is child's play. Okay. So what about in terms of training? What kind of training do you need to use something like the Clarius? Well, uh, we've had some training courses in in my office private training courses and then we've done some around the country Mm -hmm. and people like that Uh, i run a course at the american society of plastic surgery meeting which is the biggest plastic surgery meeting in the world Uh, and we probably have 200 people at at those we've done sometimes two of them so it'll be 400 people but there's not enough frankly there needs to be more training claris has been Mm -hmm. great about doing webinars and and supporting some of our training uh, efforts and you know bringing the machines and bringing us some some techs you know with that can support and and help people how to do it show people how to do it and Mm -hmm. every time they they that we have one of these people come up to me and go man this is great i'm so excited to get back and you know do this because it's like the only new thing we've had in plastic surgery that's really different everything in the last 10 (laughs) years has been a variation on the theme you know new rf device and new rf needling device there really hasn't been anything new this is really totally new and something that people my age in general surgery you know never use i never read an ultrasound or Mm. or sent somebody just didn't exist so to have it right. be able to take something out of your pocket that hooks to your iPhone or iPad is, you know, it's pretty cool. Okay. So let's talk about integrating ultrasound into the practice. Um, is it costly to add ultrasound to your practice? I mean, it's, it, it, everything's relative to people in my line or my level. There's nothing that's under $100,000 to buy. You can't, there's no machine. Right. A, hell, a good Bovie's $100,000 these days. So to buy, even when the thing was $5,000, to me, that's a non-number. It's a number that doesn't even matter. So it, uh, I look at it as an iPhone. I get a new iPhone every year just because I can, and, and I know I don't have to. <laughs> but probably every every three years, the technology changes and, and becomes better. Um, I've had every iteration of the uh, Clarius devices that they've ma- had, from the really big one to the mm. one that was a little bit smaller, the two, and now this one's, you know, wonderful. And I'm sure the four will be better than the three. They'll think of something, make it co- cooler, doesn't overheat, you know, those kind of things. But they keep changing the software, uh, even behind the scenes, and, and it just firmware updates when, when the, the app a- updates. And, you know, I have to read and see what's different. But, you know, it there. I would say that the hardware, if I had to guess, is probably going to last um, two to three years, maybe longer, before they're mm-hmm. going to say, well, you know, the okay. new firmware or the new stuff we have, we can't support it on this old platform. But I, as far as I know, I mm-hmm. think the I, – I don't know that my original L7 does not work. Honestly, I haven't tried it in a while. Uh, I know that the second <laughs> version still does work. But I, I, I remember mm-hmm. one of the people at one of the booths telling me to me, you know, there's a point in time where the, the – software gets so far advanced just like a, a, a apple you know computer right. that we we just stop supporting the legacy devices and that and that's yeah. understandable mm-hmm. so is there a return on your investment well i've not charged for it yet so i can't say there, there there's okay. an roi but i think that if you calculated what you're able to do and just the cases that you don't have to not balance bill the patient for stuff you should have known uh, it's it's an absolute mm, no-brainer right. and for the patient that doesn't leave your office because you've diagnosed the broken implant and come up with the operative plan and handed them the quote and they and they know they have a broken implant 
they're not going all over the city, you know, looking for somebody else uh, to do their case. Because mm-hmm. if they do, they're, they're going to say, I don't believe Salzman, that ultrasound thing. You're going for an MRI. Really? He told me, show me the picture. The damn thing's broken. <laughs> you want me to spend $2,500? I'm going, I think I've ordered two, two mm-hmm. MRIs in the last 10 years. It's just not, there's just very okay. few scenarios that it's ever necessary when you have this device. Mm. Okay. Um, let's see. Do you have an equipment recommendation for plastic surgeons considering adding an ultrasound to their practice? I've looked at all of them. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I think the Clarius is the best (laughs) one. I I really do. I've tried them all. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think the GE is okay. Last I looked at it, it, I'm a Mac guy. I like a, a Mac computer. We have all of our software in the office runs on on Windows, but you had to have a Windows yeah. server to store the anonymized images, or it had to go on a DICOM server. Mm-hmm. And for us, as plastic okay. surgeons in private practice, there's no hospital DICOM server that this thing goes on, and you couldn't annotate mm. the image on the GE. Um, and I'm sure that's going to be changed. That was last fall that we looked at it. I looked at the Korean Sonon device; it was terrible. Uh, I think the butterfly image is sometimes okay sometimes not okay it's hard to use intraoperatively because it's a corded device so you you got to have the whatever you're mm-hmm. looking at close enough and you know if you're doing a bbl you're moving the thing all around the claris device just sits in a little baggie and it's just always a hey, pull it up stick it on put it back down you know it's it's just easier to use intraoperatively um i i'd, yeah. I'd use the we have the claret we have the butterfly as well in the office because the anesthesia department has it my, my anesthesiologist use it mm-hmm. and it just the clarity is just not great, um, and I don't understand why. I, I I know it only goes to ten megahertz, and that may be why. But it's just a fuzzier image. It just doesn't look as good. So I'm kind of spoiled. I I've been driving a Ferrari, and yeah, that so the Porsche is okay, but the Ferrari just looks better <laughs> and turns better. And, you know, it's just a better car. And I think it's yeah. the same thing. I think Clarius yeah. is just really on top of it as far as the software being very easy to use. I mean, anybody my age and certainly younger who can use an iPhone can use this thing. You don't have to learn anything mm-hmm. about ultrasound. You really don't. You know, you, you don't have to understand mm-hmm. how it works or what you're looking at. Just up and down and sideways and, and correct. And all the presets are there. The butterfly only has like one preset that's applicable and it can't work for every single thing. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and they may get better. Um, but I think they're limited by that technology of, of, of ultrasound on a chip rather than using a piezoelectric crystal. Um, are there specific features that you would advise people who are looking at ultrasound to look for? I think it depends on what you I get asked this question all the time, so it's a very good question. I mean, because mm. they make three of them, essentially, a, a 7, uh, a 20, and a 15. And it all depends on what your okay. sweet spot is. In Louisville, Kentucky, we got a lot of what we call Kentucky mediums. And that's a, a euphemism for a larger lady with a high BMI. And so the, the <laughs> okay. sweet spot for the L7 is more, it's a little deeper uh, where you're going to be able to see seven mm. centimeters down with some degree of acuity. Whereas the L15, oh, okay. it'll see it at that depth. It's just not as good of an image. And I'd rather see better at seven centimeters down in a big thick breast or a big abdomen than see a little mm-hmm. better at two centimeters down because I haven't seen that okay. the L7, which is one I have, doesn't work for me for face. I see what I need to see. I tried the L15. is a little better. It's a little better, 
but it's not markedly better. And so I think for us mm-hmm. as plastic surgeons, I tell the people, buy the L7 because I think it works well enough for the face. And the face is going to be 10% of your use. You know, if you're a facial plastic surgeon okay. and you're never going to look at anything other than the face that's a centimeter and a half, two centimeters thick, then you get the L20. And because you, you're going to look more superficially, you want that acuity. And if you're two people using it, one's a facial ENT guy and one's a uh, board certified general plastic surgeon like I am that does face and body, get the L15. It's in between. But for most people, mm. I, I think the L7 is, is the better choice. Okay. Well, Dr. Salzman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and our audience today. I think you provided some really great insight into the role of ultrasound and what it, how it can play a part in the clinical workflow. So thank You're you so welcome, much. You're welcome, Allison. Take care. Well, thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the MedCorp Podcast Network to keep up with the latest Plastic Surgery Practice podcast episodes. And be sure to check out PlasticSurgeryPractice.com for the latest plastic surgery news. Until next time, take care. Thank you.